I am Anuli Akinabu, and you are listening to the Black in Real Life podcast. You're golden, you're so golden. What you got, you're the golden child. I see forever between you and me, forever between us. I have been looking forward to releasing this episode for quite some time. Since I started working on this podcast project over the summer, I knew that I wanted to dedicate an episode to talking about the memification of Black women and girls. I was inspired in part by the deaths of Brianna Taylor and Oluwatoyin Salau, who became more celebrated in death than they were in life. Unfortunately, the attempts to celebrate the lives of these women became overshadowed by attempts to commodify them as cultural artifacts, as memes. If you search for Brianna Taylor's name on a popular shopping platform Etsy, you will be welcomed to a page of over 6,000 results with ads encouraging you to buy everything from face masks to holiday ornaments with her name or likeness on them. It's safe to say that the proceeds from most of these items will not be going towards supporting her loved ones. Time and time again, it seems that efforts to quote-unquote protect Black women can result in neglecting to see the human in them, in us. With this in mind, I knew that I wanted to talk to a scholar about this, and Dr. Aria S. Halliday was the first person I thought about. Dr. Aria S. Halliday is an assistant professor in the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and Program in African American and Africana Studies at the University of Kentucky. Dr. Halliday specializes in cultural constructions of Black girlhood and womanhood in material, visual, and digital culture in the 20th and 21st centuries. Her interdisciplinary interests include sexuality, Black feminism, and radicalism in Black popular culture in the United States and the Caribbean. She is the editor of the Black Girlhood Studies Collection, published by Women's Press in 2019, and a co-editor of a special issue on hip-hop feminism in the Journal of Hip-Hop Studies, which was published earlier this year. Remember, at the end of each interview, I will come back to share a few key takeaways that stood out to me from our conversation. These takeaways will be supplemented with research from both academic and non-academic sources to add further context to subjects that were brought up in the interview portion. For every episode, I will include citations to the reference materials I mentioned, as well as some additional background reading for you on the Black in Real Life website. Visit www.blkirl.com to nerd out. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Aria S. Halliday. From the murder of Breonna Taylor and the shooting of Megan Thee Stallion, violence against Black women has been the topic of serious online conversation and much less serious memes. How do you think that the adoption of meme and stand language has enhanced public discourse, or how has it also limited our collective conversations around traumatic events 
or serious issues? I think that in many instances, a lot of us try to find the best ways to cope, right? And I think that memes and a kind of like short memes as a kind of shorthand for the way you might respond to something becomes a stand-in for actual emotional connection or response. And so I think on social media in particular, but I think even more in interpersonal conversations, um, memes in this kind of like stand culture or whatever, it stands in for like, you know, what you might think more thoroughly about a particular thing because you have a shorthand kind of response. You can pull it up. A lot of people keep, you know, they have a meme folder on their phones. Um, and so it's something quick that you can go to that can stand in for, you know, maybe a more dedicated and more in-depth response to something, right? This, this kind of image can stand in for how you really think. Um, and I think that in many ways, it, it has expanded the ways that we uh, communicate with each other, right? A lot of people use memes or GIFs or GIFs or however you want to say it in a way that adds to what they want to say or adds to what they've already talked about. Um, but a lot of people also use it as a way to stand in. And so I think that particularly when we're talking about death and trauma of Black women in particular, right, we are asking people to identify with or, you know, enhance their emotional capacity to understand what it means to be, you know, one of the most marginalized groups in the U.S., one of the most demonized groups in the U.S. And that's a lot of work for a lot of people to do. And so they use memes to stand in for, you know, whatever emotional connection they think they should have. And then, you know, the newest ones where they're like, you know, you know, I had a breakfast sandwich this morning and right after that, you know, I hope we can arrest the, whatever the <laughs> correspondence is between whatever they did or whatever the original part of the meme is. And they add this kind of, you know, arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, people think, especially in a, in an image driven culture that, you know, you're swiping or you're scrolling through or whatever, and you're going to see something that's like, oh, that's a cute, funny thing. And then you see something that's jarring, right? Like, you know, arrest Breonna Taylor or, you know, however many shots it took to kill, blah, 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 right? Those kinds of ideas, I think, you know, rupture this sense of like endless scrolling, right? Because it's a kind of, kind of a, a, a emotional attack, right? It stands in for this kind of moment that like shakes you because you're like, oh snap, that's not what I thought this was about at all. And so people have been using it for a kind of shock factor. Um, what do you think about that argument? Like using it to um change up the algorithm or to shock you into paying attention yeah i mean i think that like you know memes and just like that's part of their purpose right that like the reason why the the most popular ones are usually based on something that's racist or horrific right like so um and i mean i've written about the fact that like usually when you're talking about black women or uh something that's traumatic you use black women to do that kind of work and so i mean on one side of it, I think it's, you know, very problematic to to use Black women or to use something that's kind of innocuous, like I had breakfast this morning, to like stand in for this kind of really profound conversation that you want people to have. But on the other end, when especially, you know, it's quarantine, people are just scroll, kind of endlessly scrolling or what I've seen calling dead scrolling, like people are just scrolling and they don't even know why, like something like that could be jarring enough to connect them emotionally to something that they've been kind of numb from or not but I think that doing it I don't I, you know I can't really speak to the impact or the intent even of what people are or why people are doing things like that but I think I understand the purpose even though I may not choose that purpose myself mm. 
I also think about like not only Bianca Taylor's death, but also the death of Oluwatowin Salu, who died this year. Yeah. And she would have turned 20 on August 27th, which happens to be the day after my 30th birthday. So mm. she comes to mind. We're also both Nigerian. And one thing I noticed was that there are so many like posthumous images that were made to iconicize her after she died on social media. And it was very jarring because you're seeing all this like love being poured into her like after she died, but she needed that support when she was alive, like she right. has said it. Um, I want to share with you this quote from an article in The Hood Communist, just to get your thoughts on on this. And the article is called On Brianna Oluwatoin and Posthumous Iconography of Murdered Black People. And in it, it says, in death, Brianna and Toyin are queens. They are angels. They are saints. They are cover girls and muses. They are regal and chic and beautiful. They are merchandise. They are screensavers. They are profitable. What is striking to you when you hear that? I mean, two things, right? Uh, one, that they are kind of honorific, but they, they're also profitable, right? That the, the same ideas of like why we might want to honor and appreciate and respect Black women are the same ideas that might make them profitable, right? That might make somebody put them on, a, on the front of a magazine. And I think that um, what's disturbing or what I think most people find disturbing about those kinds of things is that, you know, they, what I saw someone say on Twitter was that like, Breonna Taylor would have never been on the cover of a magazine when she was alive, right? And so that it's, it's kind of a strange commodification of her death that she would have never had the opportunity to do in life. Hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, when we are specifically talking about commodifying Black death, specific, specifically Black women, you know, we're asking, you know, a system that is created and benefits from our own um, dehumanization, right? We, we have been commodities in all the ways that you can be a commodity that, you know, we are pushing people or trying to remind them that like, oh, yo, this is a person, this is a human. We need to respect them as a human. But the systems that we are actively working against that kill us, right, if I can be short, is, are, are the same systems that have always commodified us. And so I, I don't think that we should be surprised. Well, not to say that you can't, you know, have an emotional response that's negative to what's happening, but we can't be surprised that, you know, the United States, was, which is in most Western cultures, which, which are specifically built on um, both the labor and the reproductive work that Black women have done um, for centuries, right? Like, we can't expect them to all of a sudden care that we die when, you know, the whole um, kind of field of gynecology and J. Marion Sims and, you know, the father of gynecology and all the stuff that they say he is, right, is built off of, you know, ripping apart Black women who were supposed to be getting treatment for pregnancy or stillbirth or whatever, right? Like, the very systems that we have, the fields that we have, the information that we have, if you want to talk about Henrietta Lacks or Tuskegee syphilis study or any of these things, and I'm sure there are many of them that we don't even know the names of, right? Like, everything that we know about the body, about commodities about selling things about people right all of that comes from the dehumanization of black women so i'm not surprised that somebody would put their faces on a magazine and people would buy it because that that is the that's arguably what they tell us our value is right your value mm -hmm. is only right to be used in this way 
And I think that's a good point that you make that essentially all of these structures are made off the backs of Black women. So many industries are made off the backs of Black women. So now I'm thinking as a Black woman, both of us, like how do we take that awareness and move about in the world? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think that um, I tell people, and I've written about this too, when I grew mm-hmm. up in you know the early 90s, my mom never told us, like, we never sat down to have a conversation about the cops. We never sat down to have a conversation about, like, what it means to be a Black woman and to, like, walk around with keys or only park under light structures so you know, like, if somebody's trying to mess with you or whatever. Like, we didn't have those conversations. It was understood. It's in the water, right? Like, part of just who you are, you get, like, my hair means something, my body means something, I'm always available to certain people. But, like, that's part of the way that Black girls especially grow up. And I think that, you know, what what keeps us sane, I think, is that, you know, knowing one, we're not alone, right? Like there are other black women who are also experiencing this, but like this information is not new. And so, you know, part of why I'm a professor in the first place is because, you know, I found joy and sorrow and trauma and love in the, in the stories of other black women, right? Like black women who've come before me and studied and thought about what it means to be a black woman, what it means to exist with these structures that's not going anywhere, right? Like, what it means to deal with these things people have written about for ages, right? Like Audre Lorde has been talking about this stuff, right? When she was alive and when she passed, right? There, there are people from, you know, the continent, for example, there are people from Europe, there are people from the US, from Canada, from South America, who have been writing about, talking about these different things. And I think, you know, what grounds me, I think every day is that like, there's somebody else to turn to. Like, even when it's, it feels like it's the craziest, most ridiculous situation that I have been in, right? Someone else has written about this. Someone else has theorized this. Someone else has has really like plotted through and thought about how ridiculous it is that we still have to deal with this, but also how we continue to move on from it. And I think like, that's what I get energized by. That's why I continue to wake up every day and decide like, okay, you know, being a Black woman is the best thing that there is in the world, even as, right, people have all this stuff to say. It was a particularly great moment to be a black woman this weekend when girlfriends was released on netflix i don't know if you had a chance to to catch up i personally had caught up on the whole series last year my friend gifted me the box set for my birthday so i was i've already been rewatching it i wanted to get your thoughts about it because you do work in the realm of like media representation of like black womanhood and black girlhoods and i think this is a great example to talk through a show like girlfriends how do you think girlfriends contributes to the representation of black women's lives on screen and why do you think it still resonates with people now 20 years since it first premiered right i think that's a great question one i've been watching moesha so oh let's <laughs> talk about moesha too <laughs> <laughs> i haven't gotten the girlfriends yet it's on the list um because you know they just they're releasing all of them in, in this month so i've been trying to catch up on moesha and deal with you know whatever is happening in that show but i think moesha girlfriends sister sister a lot of these like 90 shows early 2000 shows that they're re-releasing i think one pushes us to engage you know who we were at the time right like when Moesha is, you know, premiering 1996, 1997, like, I was six, right? So <laughs> there, there are certain ways to, like, think about, like, what am I seeing and viewing, what ideas are being um, put out for Black girls, for Black women at the time, but also I think they continue to resonate because we still have those same conversations, we still have those same questions. Um, a show like Girlfriends, which is, like, you know, 
not too different than something like insecure, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of, or even if you want to go back further, living single, right? It's a very kind of resonant idea that you have black girlfriends who are trying to go through life together and navigate what those relationships require of them. And so I think that, you know, girlfriends is going to continue to resonate. Living single is going to continue, continue to resonate. Moesha and other shows will continue to resonate in the way that Insecure and other shows do because, you know, those same conversations about, you know, dating outside your race or what does it mean to deal with black men? Um, you know, what kind of job do I want? Where do I want to live? But, you know, how do I want to wear my hair? All those kind of conversations that happen across those shows, you know, happen in real life, happen in conversations that you have with your mother or your girlfriends or whoever. And so they continue to resonate because you're like, hmm, maybe I could have dealt with that conversation differently. Or if I was presented with this option, you know, how would I have maybe manifested that differently? You know, like I think about living single and Khadijah's character with Scooter and how they were mm -hmm. going back and forth for ages, right? Like, I know chicks who are who are Khadijah, right? Trying to like live their own life, but also they have this dude or they're like, do I continue to try to deal with this? Do I stop? Do I not, right? And, and I think that um, they resonate because they're stories that we continue to identify with. But I think also, you know, thinking through a 2020 lens, we can see all of the ways that they were problematic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someone was saying recently to me that, like, they watch Moesha and those first couple of episodes, probably the first three or four, have, like, all of these kind of fat phobic I've heard that argument, yeah. about Kim and Kim's character and, like, why somebody would want her or why they wouldn't want her. But I think that, like, you know, in 2020, we can say, oh, that's so rude that somebody would say that. But, like, as a chunky Black girl in 1996, people definitely said those things, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that, like, you know, it's, it's a window into who we were at the time as a, as a country, as a community, as a kind of black diasporic thought conversation and how we change. Right. I think that, and there are a lot of ways that we're the same and that, you know, there's a lot of attention to like heterosexuality and all these kinds of things and like what black men want and gangster culture and cars and all of that. But there's a lot of stuff that's different that like, insecure hopefully right tries to pick up and do something differently with and so i think if you compare those right shows and kind of think through them over time and like where we are as a community i mean community in the broad sense not like the black community right but um where we are as a community and how we grow intellectually like you know there's some huge changes between who we were in 1995 and 2020 and i think that is huge when we talk about, you know, really understanding what it means, you know, black, blackness is not a monolith and how representation has to be expansive. Like, you know, I was just watching Lovecraft Country, right? And so what it means for a particular, you know, black man character like Montrose to be queer um, and all the ways we might put queer in quotes, right? Um, in 2020, I'm not sure that we would have been watching or even interested in that in 1990, right? Even if there are people who we know who live and experience life that way, that doesn't necessarily mean it would have been on television, like not in the way that Moesha or, or Sister Sister or something like that was. And so I think that, you know, to me, it just speaks about like how different life is now, how much more expansive, how much more growth, right, we've been through in terms of, you know, what we appreciate on television, the stories that we love, the stories that we identify with, but also how much further we have to go, right? I hope mm -hmm. in 2020, you know, we're having particular conversations about um, trans women and the murder of Black women and children and that kind of thing. But, you know, hopefully in 2040, we're talking about something else, right? Hopefully. That's not, <laughs> I can yeah, say hopefully yeah. that's happening.
I want to pull apart a few pieces from your your commentary there. First, a very serious question of, because you said, you know some women who are Khadijas. Rich mm-hmm. living single character, would you describe yourself as? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's dangerous. Um, I don't know. I always identified very closely with Maxine Shaw, right? Um, Attorney of Law. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I think in real life, I'm probably a mix of of Khadijah and Maxine, only in that, you know, I, I think I'm much more connected to and interested in a kind of communal sense that I think Khadijah was always attuned to. She was always thinking about like, you know, what are we doing together or how do I help somebody or whatever. I also, you know, love having multiple romantic relationships at one time, which Khadijah was very good at. <laughs> She always had a fine man on her. <laughs> right. I mean, she always, and, and Max too, they always were busy. I will put it like that. They were always busy with, with multiple friends, which I loved. Um, but they, like, Max was always invested in, like, eating well and having a good laugh. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would definitely say I'm probably a mix of those two. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an intense person. Max, Max would have been intense. So <laughs> I, I identify with that. <laughs> And you said you, you've been watching Moesha, and I'm wondering, because you also mentioned some of the commentary that people have been making since rewatching it. How has it been to rewatch Moesha for you now as, as an adult? Well, I think it's hard because I'm watching, you know, kind of through childhood nostalgia, right? Of okay. like remembering it and Brandy, but also I study, you know, what it means to see Black girls on screen. So I'm watching it through kind of two lenses. One, what it means to, like, experience it in myself, but also what it means to watch these kinds of things in 2020 or in 1996. And I think that, um, what is dope? The show is so cute. Like, I, <laughs> I think that I, I was, I can immediately connect it with, you know, I remember the song, the, you know, the theme song and, you know, um, the the kind of family dynamic they've created and Kim wanted to be a cheerleader. I never wanted to be a cheerleader, but I had a friend who tried to force me to try out for basketball and that was a problem, (laughs) but I was there for her. Right. Like, so there are so many stories that like, I remember that made up, you know, middle school and high school that so much represented some of what the show talks about. Um, So I enjoy it for that reason. Right. But the other part of me is like, I think, you know, so often people want to read things in their evolved brain, right? Like everybody's woke now. So they're watching the show through this kind of, um, oh, well, it should have done this. And it's like, okay, well, in 1996, nobody was talking about that in the yeah. same ways, right? So you can't expect a show that's on, you know, WB or UPN or whatever it was to really do something that, you know, we don't, we're only really seeing on like HBO now. And the only reason we can see it on HBO is people can, you know, stream it. Back in the day, you can pay for HBO. That was crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I wonder, because you, you just mentioned, like, when you watch shows, you're, you're not just doing it as, like, a regular, you know, consumer or viewer. You're also a scholar. Right. And as someone who, like, studies popular culture and also, like, consumes in their personal time, do you feel overwhelmed with, like, everything you watch? You're like, oh, I could write a paper about that. Like, oh, there's <laughs> something, you know, like, do you ever actually just get to watch without critical lens? Or is the critical lens still important to you when you view things? The critical lens is always there. And I think that you know, to be honest, it was always there before I got a degree, right? Mm-hmm. That some of some of what you get, and I tell my students this all the time, because they're like, oh my God, you ruined this show for me. Now I can never watch <laughs> it 
because I see all the things that you're talking about. And I'm like, okay, but you should see those things, right? The reason that we don't see them is because we live in a system that tells us it's important to ignore it, right? But then you learn, you know, through proximity to people, through other experiences, through school, you get language, right, to really understand and interpret what's happening. And so I would say that it's always been there. I just have better language and I'm kind of more adept to like understand what's happening in the context of it. There are, of course, things that I'm able to watch with, with um, perhaps less critically. I don't know if, if it's, you know, not at all, but it's maybe less so. Um, but usually I'm watching something like Project Power, for example, the film mm-hmm. of Jamie Foxx that's on Netflix right now. And, you know, I'm not thinking anything that's necessarily academic. I'm like, okay, we about to watch an action show. Some people are going to get shot and killed, like whatever. And then there's this scene with a black girl that I'm like, oh no, what are they doing to the black girl? What's <laughs> happening? And all of a sudden it's something that I need to think through. Right. And so I think that sometimes I have this kind of like jarring kind of critical moment where I'm not necessarily trying to like engage in a super critical way, but there's something, there's an undercurrent of something, there's something misogynist that happens or something that's racist that happens that I'm like, hold on, did they just say what I thought they just said? Hold on, wait a second, rewind, we need to replay this. Um, and I think that that definitely shifts the way that I understand what's being read uh, or what's happening on screen, yeah. I want to now pivot our conversation to a presentation that you did last year called The Afro Features of Feminism, Young, Gifted, and Black. I watched it. And um, it was during at a it was during an open forum at Plymouth State University. Yeah. Um, and I want to first ask you like this the most basic questions just from the title because I I hear the word Afrofuturism a, a lot and maybe right. some listeners may not even know what that is but they hear it too. What does it mean to be an Afrofuturist? <laughs> what is Afrofuturism? That's a great question. Um, so Afrofuturism comes out of a particular um kind of fantasy science fiction kind of conversation so there are people like octavia butler who get thrown in a lot in terms of conversations about afrofuturism there's music um sorry my brain is like trying to add all the people together I'm like <laughs> how do i give you the shorthand but basically it's thinking about you know what are the other possibilities otherworldly or not right for black people and i think that um or through the through the eyes of a black person. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that it's always about black people, but I think Afrofuturism, if you use Octavia Butler, for example, she's always thinking about, you know, the next world or, you know, vampires or <laughs> fantasy or science or technology, right? It has this kind of idea about what it means for um, black people to experience the world differently, right? So thinking about futures, Um, It's not necessarily about like, you know, post 2020, but it's about thinking beyond the present moment, specifically for Black folk. That would be my shorthand. (laughs) And I want to pull up one thing you said in in that presentation. Um, You said a lot of times we think of the future as something separate from ourselves, but the future is happening now. And the future is what we hope what we hope to embrace is the work that we do today. Um, you said this last year. What does Ooh. that mean to you today? This is why I never go back to listen to anything. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I said that? Um, I'm smart. Um, okay, so I think what I meant at the time was that, you know, I think a lot of times when we're talking about racial justice or how, you know, how do we experience the world differently or better, right? We think it always has to be like future, right? It has to be in some time where I'm, you know, more established or I'm more an adult. I have more money. I have more whatever. 
And I think particularly when, you're, when I was talking, those are in the context of college students, but when you're talking to people in a present moment, you have, they have to understand that like, and Angela, this is Angela Davis. It's not even, you know, Ari Holiday being special or, or spooky deep or anything, but like Angela Davis would say like, it takes um, this particular moment right now where you decide to do something differently than what you've done before. Right. And I think that, um, you know, for, for folks in May of this year, for example, who are like, you know, I maybe have never marched before, but, but today I'm going to march because I, I want a different result than what we have. Right. That is one, you know, kind of one individual choice that makes a lasting impression, not only on the other people that you're interacting with, but on the world. And so I think that, you know, when we're talking about like, futures or futurism and what that might mean it, it means that like you are creating the future right now and the choices that you make um and the people that you interact with i mean the food that you eat right you're creating you know your tomorrow by what you do today you're creating next week you're creating next month um next year uh, by what you do right now and i think that like i said that's not like a special tenant of something that i said but i think that's really the way that um the black women radicals that I love and appreciate the black women progressives that I follow, right. That that's the kind of work that they're committed to, right. Like it may not make sense right now because you're trying to figure out how to, how to even do it. But in a year from now, the system's going to be created. It's going to be set up. It's going to be smooth, but you got to start somewhere. What can we, the collective we in this case, do to promote black feminist scholarship and, and these scholars that you talk of and this work that they do? I think, you know, as a professor, people will be so mad at this answer, but I'm like, first of all, you need to read. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think so many folks expect like a spark notes kind of response mm -hmm. to racial justice, to blackness, to like understanding what's going on in the world. You want something that's quick and easy that you can, you know, digest in, you know, two minutes or something like that. And that's just not, one, that's not how the work, the way that the world works, but also that's not the way that like, changing who you are in the world that you live in is going to work at all right but mm -hmm. so i think that i mean if you want to know more about you know afrofuturism go pick up you know yatasha womack's like you know a book about afrofuturism or you could pick up angela davis or you could pick up audrey lord or octavia butler that i already named or there's so many um you know even in a in a, in a present sense right there there are books coming out almost every day by mm -hmm. black women writers that will give you some of that understanding of, of Afrofuturism, but also a Black feminist scholarship. So, if you, I mean, Mickey Kendall has a book called Hood Feminism that came yeah. out recently. You know, Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage does a great job. Tracy uh, McMillan Cotton has um, Thick that came out. I mean, there's so much, right? I mean, I mean go yeah. to a shelf and just buy the whole Read a shelf. book. <laughs> just buy the whole shelf and, and you'll yeah. be good. Um, but I think also, you know, so I, I don't mean just buy the books. Yes, buy them, but also read them um, yes. because there are people out here buying books that never read them. So including the shelfies. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, including myself. I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, I got books on my shelf I need to read. But, you know, so I would say one, you need to read. Two, I think, you know, get in a group with other people who are trying to have these same conversations, right? So there are a lot of people, especially right now, who are connecting via Zoom and other means to you know have book clubs right there i've my best friend and i started a book club um for like how to build your friendship better right like so i think there's there's multiple groups that you can join in. and literally i think it's called book clubs with a z.com you can create your own book club you know tell people when to meet when y'all gonna talk and really have a conversation about what you're reading so that it's not just you you know processing on your own which can be great but you're processing in community which i think is what's required right to really change the way that we understand ourselves and the world around us 
So read, talk to some other folk. And then I would say support organizations, right? Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of organizations, Black feminists and otherwise, who are doing really great work on the ground, whether that's Movement for Black Lives or that's something else, right? There are a lot of mutual aid organizations you can support um, in your local community, you know, even if it's, you know, $3 a month or $5 a month or $10 a month, right? You know, right now I'm, I'm a subscriber for Bitch Media, which is, you know, one of the only, you know, still surviving independent mm -hmm. um, feminist media organizations and they do a quarterly magazine and it's eight dollars a month i'm not even doing nothing crazy right but i think that um you know committing to a particular group of organizations let's say like i want i'm doing something for you know the alumni organization from the universities that i attended i'm doing something for bitch media i'm doing something right so there are multiple ways that you might contribute you know time energy money um and passion but i think that you know, so many people are like, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm not going to do anything. I think, you know, doing those three things, right? Mm -hmm. Like readings, re you know, talking in conversation with other people and then supporting organizations, whether that's time or money or whatever, like those three things will change the world instantaneously. And I also want to ask in, in that lens, who should people follow that you think is like doing a good job at just being Black, just being a woman <laughs> in the world? Like, who do you recommend? <laughs> Who are the people who are doing great just being Black? You know, um, I have a, a friend from graduate school, um, Chelsea Frazier, on, mm -hmm. and I think her she has a page called Ask an Amazon on Twitter and Instagram um, that you can, she does work around Black feminist scholarship about environmentalism. So if you have questions about like why California is on fire right now, like mm -hmm. Check, you know, check out Chelsea and her work and really understand like what the context is and what that has to do with racism, with white supremacy, with feminism, right? All these things are related. And I think she does a really great job of, you know, being unapologetically Black herself, right? But also like, you know, pushing people to engage not only their experiences, but how they connect to all the other ones. She's really fabulous. Um, I mean, I think it's ridiculous to say follow me because I don't think I'm doing anything that particularly great, but... You better make up yourself. <laughs> You're existing as a Black feminist scholar no, I am. I'm in academia. Here. I'm out here. But the only reason I would say follow me is because I spend most of my time on Twitter promoting other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I spent, like, most of my tweets are about jobs, are about opportunities, are about organizations. Um, and what's your handle for the people? At Dr. Aria Holiday. Um, yeah, I mean, most of the work that I do is is promoting other people. I mean, sometimes I'm out here doing crazy stuff where, you know, I'm I'm creating debates on social media, which is a bad idea. But I think most of the time it's about, you know, I'm I'm interested in us getting this money, right? I'm promoting jobs, I'm promoting opportunities, I'm promoting, you know, organizations to support, I'm promoting books to buy, right? I mean, almost every day I'm like, go buy this book. It's dope. Um, so I think like, if you want to do those three things that I mentioned, you know, in the last question, like, you know, you can follow me and find those people and you can decide after you find those people, you don't need to follow me anymore. And that's totally fine. You know, because I, I believe in my heart of hearts, like I'm a connector. It's not about me. It's about how do I get you to the next thing that's going to help you. And so, you know, follow me for 30 days to see if you get what you need. And if, if you do, great. And if you don't, great. Like, you know, there, there are multiple ways to get there. But I think, I mean, I think Twitter in particular has uh, a feature where you can just like look up specific phrases. Like look up those phrases and see who's talking about, who's talking mm -hmm. about Afrofuturism on Twitter and follow, you know, follow people who are doing that work. Um, 
follow authors who are doing, you know, the reading of the stuff that you're reading or whatever. Like there are people who are doing really dope stuff. But I think sometimes when you don't know where to start, you're confused, but like start from what you know, but then, you know, where you want to expand. If I want to know more about environmental racism, let me see who's writing about that. If I want to know more about, you know, <laughs> in, in college, I was really interested in mountain removal. I didn't even know that was a thing, right? They're like, they're literally people who are blowing up pieces of mountains and moving them. Right? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> in Appalachia, right? In Appalachia, right? It's a whole thing. And it literally destroys communities, destroys lungs. I mean, it kills kids. It's all kinds of crazy stuff, right? But they're trying to get coal. So they blow up part of the mountain, right? And I watched a documentary about it. And so I follow people who's, who write about that because I want to know what's happening with mountain removal in Appalachia. You know, any of those things. I'm, I'm interested in what's happening on, on Native reservations. So I follow a couple of, you know, activists who are doing stuff on Native, on Native Americans. I'm interested in what's happening in Hawaii and, you know, indigenous communities. So I follow some of those. I'm interested in what's happening with K-pop in Korea. So I'm following people who are doing that. I think, like, you know, you're never going to get everything. But I think it's important to think expansively about, you know, where do you get your information from? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Twitter is a great place to kind of like collate all those things into one place, it's put all those things in one place and say, okay, I kind of have a handle on this thing. Let me go follow three other people who are doing it. That was my interview with Dr. Aria S. Halliday. While Dr. Halliday and I covered a lot of topics in our conversation, I would like to focus today's takeaways on highlighting Dr. Halliday's research. Not only do I find her work to be so necessary to read, but I also believe it is important to support Black women by citing Black women. Shout out to Kristen A. Smith and the hashtag CiteBlackWomanMovement. In 2018, Dr. Halliday published a paper for the Girlhood Studies Interdisciplinary Journal called Miley, What's Good? Nicki Minaj's Anaconda, Instagram Reproductions, and Viral Mimetic Violence. In this paper, she writes about how the bodies, aesthetics, and experiences of Black women are vilified for viral enjoyment by using the creation of memes that appropriated the artwork from Nicki Minaj's single Anaconda as evidence to support her claim. Dr. Halliday introduces the term image economy to describe the ways that global conversations and attitudes towards popular ideas are fueled by the constant sharing of images digitally on social media sites. She goes on to apply this term to the process of viral reification as it relates to Black girls and women. Viral reification is a two-part phenomenon that involves the intertwined processes of commodification and objectification. Commodification in this context is when demonizing ideas and concepts about black girls and women are recycled in digital spaces. Objectification in this context is when black girls and women are denied humanity in these recycled racist and misogynist images. Through this viral reification process, Black girls and women are made into objects that are then sold. While Dr. Halliday goes on to examine the 
digital beheading of Nicki Minaj's Anaconda single art and Miley Cyrus's role in it to demonstrate how the bodies of Black girls and women are subject to symbolic thefts on digital platforms. She also discusses how digital representations of Black women directly influence the ways that they are treated beyond social media. Here, she cites the experiences of women like Charnesia Corley, Wanisha McBride, Sandra Bland, and Nia Wilson. Say her name. Charnesia Corley, Wanisha McBride, Sandra Bland, Nia Wilson. Black women who were subjected to violence for simply existing. Quite literal deaths. This article was written before the murders of Brianna Taylor and Oluwatoyin Salau and many other women, cis and trans women collectively, who have been subjected to violence for simply existing. But the issues overall since this piece was published that Dr. Halliday highlights, they remain pressing, they remain relevant. I want to turn now to talk a bit about one of Dr. Halliday's most recent projects, a special issue of the Journal of Hip Hop Studies released in July 2020 that highlights the particular oppressions faced by Black women who are hip hop feminists and the ways that they thrive in spite of it. In this issue that Dr. Halliday co-edited with Dr. Ashley N. Payne of Missouri State University, the editors lay out what they called the 21st century B-I-T-C-H frameworks. These frameworks were created to provide a more nuanced definition of hip-hop feminism that opens a conversation of hip-hop feminism to all women, from the ratchet woman to the classy woman to the hood feminists and to all women femmes and girls who, as they write in their introduction, continuously represent and reconstruct Black girl slash womanhood. The issue traces the genealogy of the scholarship on hip-hop feminism and its relationship with second-wave Black feminism while positioning hip-hop feminism as a liberatory framework and epistemology that rests at the center of conversations surrounding sexual pleasure and identity. As a scholar, Dr. Halliday produces work that centers and celebrates Black girls and women, while also challenges the various racist and misogynist stereotypes that result in their oppression, both online and offline. You have just listened to a production of the Black in Real Life podcast, hosted by Anuli Akinabu, developed by Anuli Akinabu, scripted by Anuli Akinabu, Edited by Anuli Akinabu, with research support by Anuli Akinabu. The music was graciously provided by Garth, whose single Wild can be streamed on anywhere you can find music. Thank you, and remember, the people you follow online are also Black in real life.